Production. Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris Degenia Saturdays. Welcome, and thank you for listening. Tonight is Saturday, April, Saturday, March 3rd, 2012. Praise Yahweh. I, I'd like to, to um, I, I don't know, maybe people in the chat room could let me know later whether or not there's been a lot of mainstream news or any mainstream news on the tornadoes in Indiana. I would like to to um to know that. Yeah, you know if it, if, if those tornadoes went to a Negro ghetto and and knocked everything down, it, there would be um it, it would be in the news all over the place. There'd be collections and all kinds of stuff, right? And and um, I, I don't think mainstream media watchers have heard anything. I could be wrong, but but um I haven't heard any talk about it, and and with my family members at all, and that they do watch a little mainstream news. I stay away from it. The um, before I start, I, I just like to say that if your universalist Christian identity pastor is citing Obadiah one eighteen and he's not citing Obadiah one sixteen, then he's a hypocrite. And when you hear a Christian identity adherent or student or teacher or pastor talk about Obadiah one eighteen. Please ask them if they know about Obadiah 116. And I won't quote it tonight, but I probably will next weekend. And, and um, there's hypocrites in Christian identity that, that, um, that, that look for or claim to look forward to the fulfillment of Obadiah 118 that don't seem to have ever read Obadiah 116. That, that's just incredible to me. Tonight I'm going to talk about, um, I'm going to give a presentation of one of my papers, translating John chapter 1, verses 11 to 13. Uh, I don't know how long ago I wrote it. It was a while ago, maybe five, maybe six years. Probably back when I was translating John in, in um, I think, 2006, when I did my John translation. If we indeed care about our culture, our race, or our heritage in the first place. We may read the Bible, and we may read other works of our historical literature, and from those, the, those records, from those testimonies of ancient times, we formulate a Weltanschauung, a worldview, based upon what we believe that those books are telling us. Many of us, on the other hand, too lazy to read and research for ourselves, base our worldviews upon the opinions of others and what they think those books might be saying. A lot of what most, a lot of what most common people believe is actually hearsay. It is from this formulated worldview that we judge what is right and what is wrong. Jacob was blessed because he followed after the worldview of his parents and his God. Esau was cursed because he had no care for his heritage, and he based his actions upon his own judgments. In this day and age, each of us makes a choice to be like Jacob or to be like Esau. In turn, all translations of the Bible further reflect, to a great degree, the worldviews of their translators. 
And that's probably true of any book, right? Compare the Murphy view, the, the Murphy translation of Mein Kampf and the Mannheim translation is a good example of uh, of that same that 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 same thing in modern times with a modern work. Every translation requires a certain amount of interpretation, along with the grammatical and lexical skills which are necessary in order to make a translation. That is because many words can have more than one meaning and also in another language, and, and also because there are idioms and other nuances of language which just simply cannot be translated mechanically, yet still maintain their original sense. Bible translations, such as the King James Version, have additional problems. It was a political translation which sought to legitimize the authority and structure of the state church, the Church of England, and therefore many words have been rendered in a manner to support that idea. Words such as church rather than assembly or congregation, and it was congregation in the, in the Geneva Bible that it actually heavily borrowed from. Deacon rather than servant or minister, ordained rather than elected, and so on. It was also a translation written from a perspective of historical blindness. The translators took it for granted that they were somehow Gentiles who were being grafted into the covenants, many of them believing that the Jews were the people of the book and not knowing either Judean history or their own history as well as they should have. They formed a universal interpretation of many scriptures so that they could somehow include themselves as outsiders into covenants which make no provisions for outsiders. Often they did this in spite of the exclusive language of the book itself. Therefore, we see words such as Gentiles rather than nations, aliens rather than alienated, even where the word is a verb. I refer to Colossians 1.21. Everyone who rather than the phrase each one who and so on and so forth. These are only examples. The treatment of these words and phrases as they are translated and the impact which they have on the minds of their readers greatly influence the worldviews which result in the thoughts of those readers. They therefore greatly influence those daily judgments of right and wrong which each of those readers lives by. The end result is that one may think that he knows what the Bible says. However, he only supposes to know something that may not actually be the way the original writer intended it to be. Furthermore, the King James Version itself is four centuries old, and the meaning of many English words have changed since it was translated. Some of these words are important, such as generation, which in today's vernacular should often instead be written as race. More modern translations have exacerbated the universalism of the King James Version. They have done this primarily because they believe that the King James translators were correct in their original universalist suppositions and also because they believe that it is amenable to world politics and global trade to have a universalist worldview. Here we shall examine three passages of Scripture 
which lend credence to that universalist worldview in the manner in which the King James Version translated them, and see that they may be easily understood in a quite different manner, which is understanding of the exclusivity of the covenants between Yahweh God and Israel, which is explicitly stated in so many other passages of Scripture. Translating John 1, verses 11 through 13. Many of those who wisely reject the universalism of modern denominational churchianity unjustly blame the writings of Paul of Tarsus for the errant positions being trumpeted by those mainstream theologians. However, these critics of Paul fail to realize, or at least to admit, that the errors of universalism are found in like manner upon misinterpretations of statements found in the Gospels and the other New Testament scriptures, as well as certain passages found in Paul's letters. One pericope, one section of scripture, one pericope in the Gospels, which has often been mis- misinterpreted in such a fashion, is 1 John 11 through 13, which shall be discussed here at length. Once the New Testament is translated, in a proper historical and scriptural context, while maintaining the integrity of scholarly Greek exegesis, it is certain that not only the Gospels, but also the letters of Paul and other New Testament scriptures are certainly not universalist, but rather they are exclusivist. They are separatist, containing a consistent message born only to those nations which had in ancient times descended from the Old Testament Israelites. Those nations are found in the Aryan nations of Europe, and such is fully demonstrable from both history and scripture, and especially from Paul's letters, which follow perfectly after classical ancient history. In the King James Version, John 1, verses 11 through 13, read thus, He came into his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God, as if such a thing were possible, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Here the Greek of this pericope shall be examined at length, one verse at a time. I hope I do not lose you in the Greek. I will do my best to try to convey this in in, um, in audio, which which is in writing, right? John one eleven. Ice ta idia elfan. Ta idia is the important phrase there. That's translated by the King James. He came into his own. Ta idia being translated his own. It's a phrase. It's two words. Ta is the article. Idia is the word. Kai hoi idioi otan u paralaban. Now, kai is and. Hoi idioi in the King James is translated his own. Otan is him. U paralaban received him not. 
Okay? So we have ta idia in the first phrase, he came into his own. And we have hoi idioi, two Greek words. The article hoi is plural, idioi is plural. It's the plural form. It, it's the plural form of the word idios, which is the word, or, or idiotes, which is the word that we get idiot from in English. It means and that the true original meaning of the word idiot is a private person, therefore a person who's suspected to be unlearned, right? If the, um, if the Pharisees, well, when they questioned Christ about where he learned all the things of Scripture that he knew, if the Pharisees were speaking Greek, they'd have called him an idiot because he didn't study in their public universities. He studied, uh, uh, you know, as far as man is concerned and man's perspective, he studied separately from the public, so he studied privately, right? So, so he'd have been called an idiot. That, that's why I often say I'm an idiot because I didn't go to the university either. I studied privately. An idiot in its original sense is a private person, right? So, so we have two phrases here opposed to each other, ta idia and hoi idioi, and we're going, to, um, we're going to discuss those phrases. Interpretation of this verse revolves around the two phrases derived from the word idios. It's Strong's number 2398 for people with a Strong's concordance. By itself, idios is basically, and it's I-D-I-O-S, if we had to write it in English letters, is basically one's own, pertaining to oneself, private or personal. And all of the definitions that I, re that, that I present here tonight will be from Liddell and Scott from either their intermediate Greek-English lexicon founded upon their seventh edition or from the large ninth edition of, of Liddell and Scott's Greek-English lexicon. Here, the first occurrence of idios, the, the phrase ta idia, is in the neuter plural. Greek nouns and adjectives and, and other words often have what's called gender. You can identify the word by its gender, whether it's feminine, masculine, or neuter. Okay? And here it's plural. So it's a neuter plural phrase, ta idia. The second occurrence is in the masculine plural. Hoi idioi is the masculine plural form of the Greek word idios. Both occurrences of the word appear with the Greek article, where each phrase is actually a grammatical object called the substantive, which is a group of words which act as a noun. Only the second occurrence of this phrase can refer to people. He came into his own and his own received him not is a very ambiguous sentence. What is meant by his own? Is it the land? Is it the people? Well, here, because the first occurrence is in the neuter gender and the second occurrence is in the masculine gender in Greek, only the second occurrence can refer to people. The first occurrence must designate something material. While its rendering is poetic, the King James Version misses this important distinction entirely. The large ninth edition of the Greek-English lexicon by Liddell and Scott has for the phrase ta idia one's own property. 
and cites examples from several secular Greek writings. Joseph Thayer's Greek-English lexicon has this sort of phrase, ta-idia. It has one's native land. So he came into his own land. He came into his own country, his own native land. For the second phrase derived from the word idios here, which is hoi idioi, the masculine plural, Liddell and Scott define it, members of one's own family. And there's a 1996 revised supplement to the edition, which properly adds of the phrase tone idion, fellow townsmen. Thayer says of hoi idioi, one's fellow countrymen or associates. And he cites this very passage, John 111 one's fellow countrymen. Here it shall be stated that hoi idioi may just as well be referencing ta idia, indicating that it means to describe, the use of the phrase means to describe those people who belong to the land, not the people who belong to Christ. It must be realized that not all of the inhabitants of Judea at the time of Christ's first coming were of the people of Israel. And Christ tells us that himself at John 8.30 and, and, and at John 10.26, among other places. And, and I'm, going to, um, I'm going to read those passages so that we see, because we have to understand the gospel writer's own knowledge to understand the context of John 11. I'm going to read John 8:30, John 8:37 through 47, and probably make some comments. I know that ye are Abraham's seed, and the Edomites are Abraham's seed, but they're not the children of the covenant. They're not the children of Jacob. John the Baptist told the Edomites, who, who were... And, and this can be established in, in, in the histories of Josephus and in the New Testament, who were the primary, um, the, the primary people in control of the temple from the time of Herod. John the Baptist told them, God could raise up Abraham's seed from these stones. Well, being God, I would not doubt that. Or, or, or in, in reference to God, I would not doubt that. But that doesn't make those descendants children of the covenant. It doesn't make them children of Jacob. That's the point that John the Baptist was making. The Edomites could claim to be the offspring of Abraham, but they could not claim to be the heirs of the covenant. Christ says, I know that you are Abraham's seed, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak that which I have seen with my father, and you do that which you have seen with your father. Right there, Christ tells these, uh, these Pharisees that, that are disputing with him that they are not from the same origin that he is from. They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Yahshua said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham, but now you seek to kill me. You don't have true children that are bastards. Bastards cannot be your true children. That's the law of God, not the perception of men. 
But now you seek to kill me, a man that has told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This Abraham did not do. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, we be not born of fornication. Well, they were not born of fornication in their perception. Today, a race-mixed couple could get married in the child in, in the Catholic Church, and a stamp of approval could be put on that marriage certificate by, and on that marriage by the church and by the state. Does that make their offspring legitimate offspring in the eyes of God? Of course it doesn't. Of course it doesn't. It's, it's, they're abominations because they're bastards. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech, even because you cannot hear my word? You are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. Only Cain could be considered a murderer from the beginning, and abode not the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. Which of you convinces me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do you not believe me? He that is of God heareth God's words. You therefore hear them not, because you are not of God. Now John 10, 26. This one will be short, right? But you believe me not, because you are not my sheep. We can't imagine that John would be calling these people that rejected Christ, the people of Christ, in chapter 1 of his gospel, which he didn't write, he didn't write his gospel by all accounts until 60 years after the crucifixion. John's gospel was written when he was a very old man in Ephesus by all ancient historical accounts. We can't imagine that he would be telling us in John chapter 1 that these are the people of Christ, when in John chapter 8, Christ is denying any common origin and any association with these people. And in John chapter 10. We can't imagine John would be doing that, so we have to understand John's words in John chapter 1 a way in which, a, a different way other than that in which they are commonly translated. And that understanding is very attainable. Judea was heavily populated with the cursed Edomites. Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Ezekiel chapters 35 and 36 establish that. Paul explains that in Romans chapter 9. It's attested to by Strabo in his geography in book 16. It's attested to by Josephus in his antiquities in book 13. These Edomites came to authority in Judea. They basically took over the temple the, the control of the temple and the priesthood and all the offices of government in Judea in the first century B.C. in the first century A.D. And, and that's very revealed, very much revealed in the historical accounts such as Josephus' Antiquities and in the accounts of Eusebius and in the letters of Paul. It's what Paul's talking about in Romans 16.20 when he tells the Romans that that, that God would crush Satan under their feet. He's talking about the Edomites. It's what Paul's talking about 
In 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2, when Paul tells us that Satan is sitting in the temple of God, pretending to be God, Paul's talking about, he's drawing a very poetic, allegorical picture of the Edomites in Jerusalem, sitting in the temple of God, pretending to be his gods. This is the very theme of the parable in Luke 19, 11 through 27, about the man who went off into a far country to receive a kingdom, and he was rejected. And Christ exclaims in Luke 19:27, those who would not have me reign over them, bring them hither and slay them before me. Therefore, hoi idioi in John 1:11 is in the Christogenia New Testament, refer, it, it's interpreted as referring to the men of the country, those people inhabiting Judea in general, not to the relatives of Christ. And this interpretation is certainly in agreement with those definitions which are provided by the lexicons themselves. The phrase hoi idioi does not refer back to Christ. It refers back to the land. It's describing the people of the land. He came into his own land and the men of the country. Hoi idioi referring back to the phrase Ta-idia. The men of the country received him not. It refers to those people inhabiting Judea in general, and not merely to the relatives of Christ. Therefore, John 1.11 may properly be read, he came into his own land, and the men of that land, or the men of the country, received him not. Or, alternatively, he came into his own land and its inhabitants received him not. Either of these versions fully concurring with the parable in Luke mentioned above and fitting the entire context of the Bible and the entire context of the Gospel of John. The conflict disappears. There is no distortion of the meaning of the original Greek. And the distinction in the use of the neuter and the masculine genders of the phrases as they appear in the Greek is maintained, where the King James loses it totally. So we don't have to explain or accept King James' mistranslations when we try to tell people that the Bible is an exclusive book. With this, I will move on to John 1.12. The first clause, hosoi de eleban autan, but as many who received him, is a fair translation. I don't have any contention with it. The third clause, tois pistuusin ice toanoma autu, that is to those believing in his name. I don't have any contention with the translation of that. The first and third clauses of John 1.12 are not matters of dispute when we look at the King James rendering of the verse. Where I must differ, however, is with the middle clause. Edokin autus exousian technotheo genestahi. Don't worry, I'll translate that in a minute. 
The King James renders it, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God. Edokin autois, to them he gave. Exousion, the power. Tekna, children, seyu, of God. Genestahi, to become, in its radical sense, to come into being. The word tekna, it's the plural form of technon. It's Strong's number 5043. In its plural form, it's children. The word techna is a very ambiguous word. It doesn't come here with an article. The article also, the, the article, the Greek article serves a couple of purposes, and one purpose is that it clears up ambiguities because the two forms would be different. The nominative plural and the, the, the accusative plural. But the word techna itself has the same form for both the nominative and the accusative cases. Therefore, it is debatable whether this noun is the subject or the other, or the object of the verb genestahi, which is an aorist infinitive form of Ginomahi, Strong's number 1096. Ginomahi, in its most basic interpretation, is to come into being. For reasons that I will make evident shortly, I treat techna as the subject of the verb in the nominative case in the sentence and not as the object, which is how the King James Version treats the word. It can be either one. You can't prove which one it is because there's no definitive proof. It, it's just some Greek can be read two ways when, when it's ambiguous, right? When the language is ambiguous. That the verb ginomahi may be understood in the active sense, and, and I have translated it here to attain, is evident in the Apocrypha in 2 Maccabees 13.13, where in the Septuagint, Brenton renders the phrase, kahi genestahi, and to attain, taste polios ekratis, control of the city. Brenton takes that phrase with the same verb and the same form of the verb, and he translates it, and get the city, where he translates it, get. The King James Apocrypha renders the same passage in the exact same manner, and get the city. This is only one example of the use of this verb, that it can be used in the manner that I would assert that it's being used in John 1.12. I would render that phrase in the Apocrypha very literally and to attain control of the city. That The Brenton and the King James translations both ignored the word control. I guess they figured it was inferred in the phrase and get the city. But the word control is there. It's egkratis. Kahi genestahi and get. Taste polios, the city. So we see that that word, genestahi, is rendered 
to mean that the subject would attain the object, which is the city, right? Similarly, in my edition of the records of Luke, or, or I'm sorry, in my translation of the book of Acts, in Acts 27.16, the phrase perikratis genestahi case scathes is rendered to attain full control of the skiff. And the King James renders that same phrase to come by the boat. It's a little ambiguous there. It's a little strange, right? To come by the boat. The description is of a skiff, which is mounted onto a ship. It's a small, a skiff is a small ship, a, a small boat that's attached to the back of a ship, right? And, and that, yes, they had this all the way back then, right? Because there were reasons sometimes to leave the ship. So these examples clearly support a similar interpretation of the verb, as I will explain, as I have translated it here in this context in John 1.12. The children of Israel cannot become children of Yahweh. Aliens cannot become children of Yahweh, children of God. God created everything kind after kind everything after its kind. The children of Israel are already children of God. Luke 3.38, Adam was the son of God. And they are told that explicitly in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 14.1, ye are the children of Yahweh your God. Isaiah 45.11, Thus saith Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, and his Maker, ask me of things to come concerning my sons, speaking of the children of Israel. We're also told that in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 8 and in Hebrews chapter 2. Romans 8.16, the Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Hebrews 2.13 and again I will put my trust in him, and again, behold, I and the children which Yahweh has given me. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, without accepting Christ, we're children as soon as we partake flesh and blood, because we're born of the descendants of Adam. That's how that happens, kind after kind. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, before they believe anything, right? He also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that has the power of death, that is the devil, the original rebels who corrupted this world. Abraham was never told that Gentiles or any alien nations would somehow become his offspring. That's what universalist denominational churchianity teaches. That many nations would become Abraham's seed. They get it backwards. The other races, non-Adamites, are never even addressed in the Bible, except for a few exceptions where certain tribes are mentioned, such as Genesis um, chapter 15, verses 19 through 21. Or where pejoratively, some creatures are called beasts, 
some hominids, some people of other races are called beasts, which, which occurs often in the Bible. Exodus chapter 19, Isaiah chapter 56, Jeremiah 31, Jonah 3, Hebrews 12. And there is certainly no indication that any of the aliens or the beasts could ever even become the children of God. It can't. That can't happen. That's incredible. Abraham was told that his offspring would become many nations. He was told that explicitly. He was not told that many aliens would become his offspring as the Catholics and the Protestants loved to teach. Abraham was told that his offspring would become many nations, which the children of Israel, as is demonstrable in history, did become, and which Paul explains fully in Romans chapter 4. Once we understand the context of the Bible, without violating any of the rules of Greek grammar, it may certainly be more proper and as we have seen the word translated in Luke, I'm sorry, in Acts chapter 27 and in 2 Maccabees chapter 13, it may certainly be proper to render John 1.12, but as many as who received him, he gave to them the authority or the power which the children of God are to attain to those believing in his name. To see what John was re referring to, we have to examine the gospel passages, such as those at Matthew chapters 16 and 18 and Luke chapter 10, and then we will see that this rendering is therefore consistent with all scripture, as well as with Greek, while the King James rendering of this passage produces serious conflicts which cannot readily be resolved. I'm going to quote Matthew 16, 18 and 19, Christ speaking. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the, kingdoms of, the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now I will repeat John 1.12. But as many who received him, speaking about the people of his country, he gave to them the authority which the children of Yahweh are to attain to those believing in his name. Matthew chapter 18, verses 18 and 19. Christ speaking again. Verily I say unto you that whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you that if two of you shall agree on earth concerning anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father who is in heaven. That's what Christ said to the apostles. Here's what John says about it. But as many who received him, he gave to them the authority which the children of God are to attain. To those believing in his name. That's what John was talking about. Luke 10, verses 1 through 20. After these things, the Lord appointed 
70 others also, and sent them two and two, I'm reading the King James Version, before his face into every city and place, whither he himself would come. Therefore he said to them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Go your ways. Behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. Carry neither purse nor scrip nor shoes, and salute no man by the way. And into whatsoever house you enter, first say, Peace to this house. And if a son of peace be there, your peace shall rest upon it. If not, it shall return to you again. And in the same house remain, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his hire. Go not from house to house, and into whatever city you enter, and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you, and heal the sick that are therein, and say unto them, The kingdom of God is come nigh or come near to you. But into whatever city you enter, and they receive you not, Go your ways out of the streets of the same and say, even the very dust of your city which cleaves to us, we do wipe off against you. Notwithstanding, be sure of this, that the kingdom of God is come near unto you. But I say to you, it shall be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Woe unto thee, Chorazin, woe unto thee, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works have been done in Tyre and Sidon, which have been done in you, they had... A great while ago, repented, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted to heaven, shalt be thrust down to hell. He that heareth you, heareth me, and he that despiseth you, despiseth me. And he that despiseth me, despiseth him that sent me. And the seventy returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils, the Jews, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. I'm being silly, right? And he said unto them, I beheld Satan, the adversary. I beheld Satan as lightning fallen from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Here we have it. Behold, I give you power to tread on Jews and Arabs. I'm sorry. I give you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Notwithstanding in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Let's see John 1.12 again. But as many who received him, he gave to them the authority which the children of Yahweh are to attain to those believing in his name. This is exactly what John was referring to 60 years later when he recorded these words in reflection upon the things that transpired during the ministry of Christ. This is, nobody becomes the sons of God. To those who, who accepted their sonship, to those apostles who heard their master, who heard the voice of their shepherd, he gave to them the power, the authority, that the children of Yahweh would one day have at the restoration. This does not give us license today to take squat monsters out of the jungles of the netherworld and attempt to somehow make them into God's children 
as if such a thing could possibly happen. Rather, upon the restoration of the children of Israel, they, being the children of God, will have that same power that the apostles had. That's the promise. That's the deposit of the Spirit later spoken of by Paul. That is a Christian promise, and that is what John was referencing. His sheep hear his voice. If you're not a sheep, it don't matter. Before proceeding, it may be appropriate to discuss the word translated as adoption in the King James Version. Where it appears in Paul's letters, in Romans chapter 8, chapter 9, Galatians chapter 4, and Ephesians chapter 1. The word is huiothesia. I talk about adoption here because when I try to tell somebody what John 1.12 is really saying, that's where they flee to. They flee right to the adoption argument. The word is huiothesia. Strong's number 5206. It is literally the placing of a son or the position of a son. The word son being huios. Strong's number 5207. While the word may be used to describe, it can be used to describe the placing of a son for the purposes of adoption. It can also be described as the placing of a son for any other purpose, it could be described as the placing of a son into the will as an heir, into the covenant of God. That's how it's used in the Bible. But you have to be a son first. The actual act of adoption is not described in Greek by the word huiothesia. It's described in Greek by the word aispoiesis, which is a noun, or aispoieo, which is a verb. Aispoiesis means a making into. Aispoieo means to make into. That's the word that's used to describe adoption in secular Greek writing. Those words don't appear in the Bible, not in the New Testament. A general theme of the Bible, as reported by the prophets, the Gospels, the letters of Paul, and the Revelation, is that Yahweh had put the children of Israel off in punishment, and that the children of Israel would be reconciled to God through Christ. That reconciliation includes the restoration of each Israelite to his or her status as a child of Yahweh upon a return to obedience to the word of God through Christ, which is a conformance with Christ. We are to be conformed to him. Whether one wants to translate Huiothesia correctly as the position of a son, the placing of a son, the placing of one who is already a son, which is how it's properly interpreted, or a daughter, of course, or whether one insists on incorrectly interpreting the word as adoption is even immaterial in the context of the Bible, since Paul tells us that the adoption, the huiothesia, pertains 
to Israel. It doesn't pertain to anybody else, Romans 9.4. It pertains to them that were under the law, who Christ came to redeem, as Paul explicitly states in Galatians 4.5. It pertains to nobody else. There is no room for universalism in the New Testament, except in the small minds of those who would pervert the word of God and the word of Christ. People would rather take one word out of context and build their entire worldview upon that one misunderstood word than actually take the time to read the whole book and consider the context of each word as it appears. People who do such things are described by Paul in Ephesians 4.14, where he described children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. John 1.13 Poiuk ex paimaton. Not from of bloods is what it says literally. Ude ex salematos sarcas, nor from the will of the flesh. Ude ex salematos Andros, nor from the will of men, or man. Al ekseu egenestesan. While all of the ancient manuscripts are consistent concerning the contents of John 1, 11, and 12, in John 1, 13, here, the 5th century Codex Bizai contains minor differences with a couple of words, although not enough to substantially affect the translation or points of discussion here. Also, the 4th century Codex Vaticanus is wanting the phrase ude exelimatos andros, which is in the King James, nor of the will of man. Yet, the text given here from the Nestle A land, Novum Testamentum Grece, 27th edition, is sufficiently attested by several other codices of, and papyri of equal or greater antiquity. The only point of contention here is the first portion of the verse, specifically the words ex ahimaton, poi uk ex ahimaton. Those not from of bloods, plural. The King James rendering of the other words, which were born not, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, are acceptable. The King James Version has rendered ex ahimaton simply of blood, which I do not find to be acceptable. Using a concordance to the Greek New Testament, 
the Moulton Geddon Concordance to the Greek New Testament. It's a listing of every Greek word in the New Testament. The fifth edition, as a guide, out of as many of 90, as 99 occurrences of the word ahima, we might recognize that better as hema, which is how it's usually translated, transliterated in English. It's the word which gives us words like hemophiliac and hemoglobin. It, it's actually ahima in, in Strong's pronunciation guide. Some people might want to call it hyma. It's Strong's number 129. It's the common Greek word for blood. Out of as many as 99 occurrences of the word hyma, blood, in the New Testament, this is the only time that the word appears in the plural, is here in John 1.13. And surely for that reason alone, the phrase merits investigation. I shall begin by turning to the Greek Old Testament, to the Septuagint which it can be demonstrated was John's primary influence to the scripture because it was his primary source of Old Testament citations. Another concordance, the, hatch, the, the concordance to the Septuagint and other Greek versions of the Old Testament, including the apocryphal books by Edwin Hatch and Harry Redpath, Henry Redpath, I'm sorry. Second edition, I call it the H&R, Concordance to the Septuagint. It's a listing of every Greek word that appears in all the different manuscripts of the Septuagint Greek. It, it's a voluminous book. According to that book, the word hyma appears in the plural in the Septuagint manuscripts on as many as 53 occasions, the Greek word for blood appears in the plural in the Septuagint, counting all listed variations among the Septuagint manuscripts as supplied by Hatch and Redpath. Examining the Septuagint, one must also consider the Hebrew from which the word was translated. That's important. The Hebrew Dictionary in Strong's Concordance says of the Hebrew word for blood, which is dam, Strong's number 1818, it's a component of the word adam or adam, Strong says that figuratively, especially in the plural, it refers to bloodshed. It means bloodshed in the plural, in a figurative sense, when it's used in the plural. This is the obvious meaning. In 50 of the 53 occasions where the Greek word for blood, hyma, is found in the plural in the Septuagint. And those 53 occasions are stretched from the book of Judges all the way through 1 and 2 Maccabees. Throughout all the prophets, Kings, Chronicles, Samuel, Psalms. Wherever it's plural, on 50 occasions out of 53, it's clearly referring to bloodshed in context. In all of these places, it is apparent and significantly important to notice that the translators maintained the Hebrew use of the verb of, of the noun for blood when it appears in plural in the Hebrew. 
when it appears in plural in the Hebrew in the in the Masoretic text, and we check the Septuagint word for blood in the corresponding passages, we see that it also appears in plural in the Septuagint. The Hebraism is maintained. Twice in Brenton's translation of the Septuagint, he recognizes the idiom where he rendered the word blood guiltiness in Psalm 50, verse 14, and bloodshed in Ezekiel 24, 14. If one reads all of the passages, and, and they're supplied in my paper on Christogenia, my, my paper corresponding with this talk tonight, translating John 1, 11 to 13, it will be apparent that they all may have been and should have been rendered in the same manner bloodshed, where the word appears in plural. Of the three other occasions where the Greek word for blood, hyma, is plural in the Septuagint, one is at Amos chapter 2, verse 4, where only the Codex Alexandrinus has hymata, bloods, in place of matahia, which means vanities. All the other manuscripts have vanities, and that, I believe, is an obvious gloss examining the context. The Codex Alexandrinus has an error, a gloss, and it should be matahia. It should be vanities and not bloods. The final two occurrences of Hyma in the plural are found in Hosea chapter 4, verse 2, where the word appears twice. And the Greek, kahimoitaya kekutahi epiteskes kahi ahimara, F. Ahimasi Migusi is rendered by Brenton, and adultery abounds in the land, and they mingle blood with blood, even though the word blood in the Greek is plural on both occasions. This statement by Hosea is an obvious reference to race mixing. And adultery abounds in the land, and they mingle bloods with bloods, blood with blood. Although the King James Version is somewhat different, because the Masoretic text, for some reason, is somewhat different, and the Septuagint, Brenton's translation is fairly faithful to the Greek of the Septuagint, I can't account for the differences between the Septuagint and the Masoretic text in this instance. However, it's very clear that Hosea is talking about adultery in context, and, and that's even seen in the King James Version. And the word blood is plural, but it's in the sense of mingling. And they mingle bloods with bloods is the literal rendering of the Septuagint Greek. Now returning to the New Testament, Apart from the passage at John 1.13, the passage in question where blood appears in the, plural, in the plural, the word hyma, blood, appears on 98 other occasions, including the spurious interpolation found in Luke 22:43 and 44, and where the word is found in some manuscripts at Acts 17.26, where they, Paul wrote that God made all men from one, and the word blood is added to the text. So we'll include that. 
And where at the end of Matthew 27, 49, some manuscripts contain a line very similar to the text of John 19, 34, a line which is not found in the King James Version. Of all these 98 other occurrences, Hyma appears in the plural only twice, and only in a couple of manuscripts. The first is at Revelation 16, 16, only in the Codex Sinaiticus, where it appears in that manuscript to be a gloss for the Hebrewism, since the context is bloodshed. All other codices in papyri have Hyma in the singular at Revelation 16, 16, 16, 6, I'm sorry. The second is at Revelation 18.24, where the text upon which the King James Version is based, the Textus Receptus, or majority text, which is actually a large collection of late medieval manuscripts, also has Hyma in the plural, as do a couple of 10th century manuscripts. Yet all of the older manuscripts have Hyma in the singular there also. Therefore, it is relatively safe to say that Hyma, the Greek word for blood, appears in the plural in the New Testament only in this one passage, John 1.13. And all the extant manuscripts of John 1.13 attest that it's plural here. Even the Hebraistic use of the word, except for this Codex Sinaiticus in one instance, where the other manuscripts don't agree with it, the Hebraistic use, the Hebrew use of the word blood in the plural to mean bloodshed, did not carry into the New Testament. Because in many, many instances where blood appears in the New Testament and the context is bloodshed, the word is singular. That would be the Greek use, not the Hebrew use, right? That, that's not the idiomatic Hebrew use that we see in the Septuagint. It, it's the Greek use which we see in the New Testament for the word Hyma for blood. Thayer has this at Hyma. In part, I'll, I'll read part of his definition. Since the first germs of animal life are thought to be in the blood, the word serves to denote generation and origin, and he has in parentheses, in the classics also. John 1.13. He cites this very passage. Little Liddell and Scott have it, Hyma, in part, blood. Like the Latin word sanguis, means blood relationship, kin. Hopros ahimados means one of the blood or race. The ninth edition of Liddell and Scott add to that. Where they have blood or origin. Here in John 1.13, where Hyma appears in the plural, Sayer and the other lexicographers admitting that even here it refers to origin. It must denote multiple origins, mixed blood, bloods, as Thayer himself nearly suggests, but stops short. He talks about it referring to this verse and meaning origin, but he himself does not address the plural form of the word. He ignored it. Where we see the use of the word in a direct reference to race mixing in the plural in Hosea 4.2 in the Septuagint, 
where it is definitely speaking of adultery in the context of adulterous race mixing. Thayer ignores, Thayer points this very passage out, saying that it's talking about origin, but he ignores the fact that the word here in all Greek manuscripts of the Bible appears in the plural. Since the Hebraism concerning bloodshed certainly does not fit the context for the plural use of Hymer at John 1.13, and since that Hebraism appears nowhere else in the Gospels, even though bloodshed is often discussed, such as at Luke 11.47-51, this explanation that the word denotes mixed origins is the only valid alternative. I can't imagine another alternative. Otherwise, why should the word appear here in the plural of all places? of all places. And why does the word appear here at all? When in so many places in the New Testament, Ganea and Genos are used of race and birth rather than the word for blood, which is Hyma. The plural of Hyma here was used purposely to convey a specific meaning, which other words and phrases could not do in so simple and eloquent a manner, especially in conjunction with the phrases which follow concerning carnal desires and the will of man in opposition to the will of Yahweh. For it is unchecked carnal desire which got Adamic man into trouble from the beginning, which is fully evident in Genesis chapter 3. While all of the children of Adam were created from one, and the appearance of the word blood at Acts 17.26 is refuted by the older and better manuscripts, Adam was not merely the first man, but the first white man, as attested to by the biblical and historical records, and the anthropological and the archaeological records, and the very meaning of the word Adam in Hebrew. Adam means ruddy because dam means blood. That reading mixed origins for the plural of the word haima makes sense. In the biblical context here in John 1.13, as we have just explained, it is fully realized once it is understood that the Judean nation consisted of both Edomites, who were of mixed race, and Israelites. Esau, the father of the Edomites, took his wives of the Canaanite races, who themselves were mixed with the Kenites, the descendants of Cain, and other non-Adamic peoples, such as the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, and the Perizzites, they have no genealogy recorded in Genesis chapter 10. And therefore were aboriginal non-Adamic peoples of unrecorded origin, and also included in the mix with the Rephaim, the descendants of the fallen angels, the descendants of the giants of Genesis chapter 6. We see that there's more than one blood in the land of Canaan. Seeing that the Edomites of Judea were in part descendants of Cain and Canaan, one can understand how Herod, an Edomite, as Josephus often attests in his histories, could be representative of Satan, the serpent, et al., the dragon, which attempted to destroy the Christ child, Revelation chapter 12. And only Herod the Edomite fulfilled such a description as the opening chapters of Matthew's Gospel attest. Once this is understood, 
One can also understand how the serpent seed had bruised the heel of the seed of the woman and many other aspects of the Old and New Testaments. With all of this, I shall read John 1, 11 to 13. Fully within the constructs and the meanings of the coin Greek, as I have just described, he came into his own land, the land of Judah. And the men of the country, whether they were Israelites or Edomites doesn't matter, because a lot of the Israelites, as we learned from the Gospel of John, chose instead to follow the Pharisees. Even if they believed in Christ, John tells us, they wanted to believe him, but they were afraid of losing their status in society, so they rejected him. And we see that very same trait among many of our people this day. He came into his own land, and the men of the country received him not. But as many who received him, he gave to them the authority which the children of Yahweh are to attain, the, children, the authority which the children of God would come to have, to those believing in his name, not those from of mixed origin, bloods, plural, nor those from of the desire of the flesh, nor from the will of man, but they who have been born from God. Those born from Yahweh can only be those descendants of Adam endowed with the spirit of Yahweh, born in accordance with his law of kind after kind, which is iterated several times in Genesis chapter 1 and as late as Leviticus 19.19. Rather than in fornication, which is the pursuit, as Jude describes it, the pursuit of strange, the Greek word there is heteros, 2087. It means other or different. Paul says there's one flesh of man. We should all expect to be white if we're men. Jude Jude tells us fornication is the pursuit of strange flesh in Jude Jude verse 7. Adam and Eve are our example as they were of the same flesh, Genesis 2.23. For this reason, Paul warned the Corinthians not to commit fornication as their ancestors once did, and in one day, 23,000 of them were slain. By this, Paul refers back to Numbers chapter 25 to the events recorded there. The Israelites were not punished so severely for mere idolatry, but for fornicating with Moabite women. For the Baal religions, Baal Peor in this instance, were nothing but fertility rituals which were culminated in sexual unions. In this chapter, Numbers chapter 25, Phineas slays a man, a man who's not engaged at some foreign altar, but rather a man who is coupled with a foreign woman. For his action, Phineas was greatly rewarded. The day is coming, praise Yahweh, when there shall be many more like Phineas. Soon we shall hear the call, arise and fresh, O daughter of Zion. The phrase of mixed blood is commonly used to people with multi, multiracial backgrounds. Had the King James Version rendered the word imaton or, or hymatone or, or, or bloods at John 1.13 literally, if it, re- if it rendered it literally of bloods, which is what it means, 
rather than of blood, surely many of our people might have recognized the meaning of such language, and they might have asked the newfangled liberal pastors of recent times some hard questions, rather than being led astray by such an erroneous premise that squat monsters could be made children of God. At the very least, the King James and other modern versions may have rendered John 1.13, which were born not of bloods, plural, which is what the word is, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Yet there always seems to be a soapbox somewhere from atop which some liberal humanist, usually a Jew or someone of some other mixed race, is found preaching the brotherhood of man and other universalist punchlines and deceiving the sheep. Clearly, John tells us that it is not the will of the flesh, which is lust, which shall prevail. It is not the will of man, which is humanism, which shall prevail. Rather, it's the will of Yahweh, which shall prevail, kind after kind. On which end of Phineas's spear should one be found? One's worldview, based upon what one has perceived to be true, but which is not necessarily so, is a good indication of the answer to that question. Our Bibles often don't say what most people think that it says. John 1, verses 11 to 13, is a refutation of universalism. And through a sleight of hand, through the, mass, through the mistranslation of just a couple of words, or the poor translation of a couple of words, they've turned it into a universalist passage. It's an exclusivist passage. It's not universalist at all. If you're born of bloods, if you're born of mixed race, you're excluded. You have to be born by the will of God. The will of God is first expressed in Genesis chapter 1, where it says that he created us kind after kind and everything after its kind. Bastards shall never enter into the house of Yahweh, ever. Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be rooted up. That is a definite statement, and there is no wiggle room there. That's just the way it is. Thank you for listening tonight. I will be back on Friday with 1 Peter chapter 2. Praise Yahweh, and good night.